Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco bringing you an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today, on the Wings of Alliance for Natural Health, we will be revisiting our friend, Dr. Lynn Patrick. Lynn is a naturopathic doctor, and I consider her a leading light in the practice of environmental health and detoxification. Lynn has over 35 years of experience in environmental medicine, endocrine disruption, metal toxicology, and other chronic disorders. We will continue with advice for practitioners and consumers alike today. I'd like you to welcome Dr. Lynn Patrick. Thank you, Lynn, for joining us again on the Art and Soul of Healing. Thank you. <laughs> I am so happy to be here. I know. I, I was really looking forward to this today. You have no idea how exciting this is. So I consider you the repository of wisdom for environmental <laughs> health. And the reason is you're providing a space for healthcare practitioners to learn in an organized stepwise fashion. So how are you doing this? So let me give you a little history. Um, in the year 2001, uh, I was one of the first group of doctors that was trained in environmental medicine under the guidance and leadership of Dr. Walter Crinian, who has been involved in the field of uh, both naturopathic medicine and environmental medicine um, since the mid-90s, actually the early 90s, um, when he began practicing environmental medicine exclusively in his clinic. So he both was treating as a clinician, but also uh, as a contributing editor, uh, excuse me, contributing editor for alternative medicine review and several other journals. He was also publishing in the area of environmental medicine. So myself and probably about 20 other intrepid doctors set out to learn environmental medicine. And Dr. Crinian was brilliant in the way that he taught. We all were tested, meaning we tested ourselves for toxic and exposure, both in our urine, in our blood, and through fat biopsy. And that's a hidden source of environmental toxins. Unfortunately, whether we're skinny or fat, we store environmental toxins in our adipose tissue. So I, I uh, learned that the hard way. And be <laughs> I'll tell <laughs> you a story when you're done with the fat biopsy part. Okay. It, it, didn't, it didn't hurt that much. Um, seriously, it's, it's an easy thing. So when I got into in the practice of environmental medicine, uh, the laboratory that we were using, AccuChem Labs, which unfortunately is no longer available, was actually running uh, tissue biopsies, adipose biopsies. So we sent in adipose biopsies for our patients, and that's where we found the kind of hidden payload, so to speak, of toxicants. But they were also in patients' urine and in patients' blood. So back to my training. So as a result of that year-long postgraduate course, my eyes were opened and I wasn't able to go back to practicing the way that I used to because I had seen within that year that all the people that I wasn't really able to help were patients that had been environmentally exposed, either knowingly or unknowingly, and I had not paid attention. I didn't know how to pay attention. I didn't learn how to pay attention either, you know, in my practice or in my training, in my undergraduate training. So 
I uh, began the practice of environmental medicine with a, an osteopathic physician who was functionally trained. Um, and then I trained him in environmental medicine. And we proceeded to uh, work with people in our little town of Durango, Colorado, which even though it's in the pristine Southwest um, corner of Colorado in the San Juan Mountains, it is directly downwind from two of the oldest coal-fired electric generating mm -hmm. plants in New Mexico. Uh, and as everybody in the world learned in 2015, when our beautiful Animas River turned fluorescent Kool-Aid orange, mm -hmm. it is also downstream from a variety of old mining sites that leach toxic metals into uh, aquifers and mm -hmm. streams and rivers. So uh, we had a pretty high percentage of autoimmunity and cancer in our region as a result of those two things. And uh, we have a coal-fired steam engine train that runs through town. One of the last remaining, I think there's like five remaining in the United States. So it's a historic railroad that belches out high mercury uh, coal smoke. Mm or STEAM, as the health department would call it. <laughs> and so we had a lot of work to do. So that was my getting my feet wet and really learning about everyone. Um, I was very, very lucky in that practice and that I got to specialize in environmental medicine. I was able to actually uh, do hour-long intake visits, which is sort of what it takes to, to really get a good idea, especially if somebody has a complex illness. And what I found out just from looking up everybody's residential history and their work history is that pretty much everybody, Jeannie, lived within, I would say, at least three to five miles of a Superfund site, which is not that unusual because in the United States, about 22% of the population lives within three miles of a Superfund site. And a Superfund site is not necessarily a toxic waste dump, but it's either a facility or um, an industry that has polluted water, air, or soil that has had to be recognized, investigated, and somehow remediated by the EPA. Mm -hmm. We have a big corner in Kansas down in the southeast corner. It's so toxic. And when we got patients from that area, we knew that it was not going to be good. Right, right. And we had the same where I was practicing. We have the toxic triangle of Farmington, New Mexico, where the coal-fired power plants are and, you know, several other things. As a result, I started lecturing. Um, and I know I lectured for ACAM when I worked with you um, on the board of directors and several other uh, organizations, IFM and several other member organizations. And what became apparent right away is that this is not something that the doctors in the audience had been trained to deal with. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about docs that had been out in practice for 20 years. You know, new docs, even worse. You know, it's just not part of medical training. And I'm including naturopathic physicians, chiropractors, acupuncturists in the same boat as MDs and DOs. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went back to start lecturing with Dr. Crinian in his postgraduate program, um, specifically in the area of toxic metals, because that's the low-hanging fruit, honestly, um, for most doctors. 
Mm-hmm. And then uh, in 2019, Dr. Cornean passed unexpectedly, uh, and I took up uh, the mantle of teaching uh, this postgraduate course. We uh, had to rebrand it, and it's under uh, a new business, um, Environmental Medicine Education. But we are currently at work taking in doctors from all over the world to teach them online uh, environmental medicine. So mm-hmm. the way that happens is they sign up and they come into an online meeting once a month where we have uh, some of uh, Dr. Crinian's uh, mentees teach uh, the evaluation of patient cases and present patient cases. And then we we teach them updated material. You know, we're all learning about the effects of electromagnetic radiation and electromagnetic frequencies on our patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is so important uh, because of the uh, electro smog and electro pollution mm-hmm. that we're all exposed to. And then we have to deal with the perfluorinated, otherwise known as the forever compounds mm-hmm. in our drinking water, which are being found all over the United States. So I think, you know, I consider myself not only a, a teacher, but I'm also a student because I'm constantly learning from the scientists that are looking at perfluorinates. You know, the thing about perfluorinates is that that we find them in any living being, any living mammal that we look Mm -hmm. for them in. And I'm talking about anywhere on the planet, you know, the Arctic circle, the South pole, they're in all of us. They have found their way into all living species and they have extremely long half-lives. You know, the stated half-life is two to four years in the blood, but they appear to be persistent in the body for up to 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just don't know how to get rid of them. So we're we're learning about not only how to test for them, and literally, I think the National Academy of Sciences just had a meeting on this a few months ago. You saw that. I did. So we're learning how to test for them, but we're also learning how to treat that exposure because these are... Uh, carcinogens, they cause birth defects, they cause miscarriages, they alter thyroid function, they are immune toxicants, they are uh, extremely broad in their toxicity. And we are challenged, you know, as healthcare providers about just recognizing that some people are more exposed than others. You know, how do we know that? Well, we have to know what's in our drinking water and the drinking water of our patients. And so all of the physicians or all of the practitioners who really want to learn about this can go to EMEI Clinical Training in Environmental Medicine or EMEIGlobal.com. I will provide a link to this on the Art and Soul of Healing website. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so important. You know, the other thing we decided to do, because not all providers can, you know, it's not in their budget to join a a year-long postgraduate training, uh, is we decided to do a podcast. So Dr. Crinian did a podcast. I don't know if I Mm -hmm. mentioned that the last Mm -hmm. time you and I talked, Crinian Opinion, which is online, available for 
anyone who wants to go there through crinianopinion.com for free, uh, six years of monthly podcasts oh, on the environmental medicine literature, you know, what's being published, and Dr. Crinian's brilliant analysis of this literature. So that's a treasure trove um, that's available to all of us. Um, and I, I did continue those podcasts for him in 2019. And then we did it through EMEI Review, which is just a continuation of that same education, those same podcasts, just uh, under a different name. It's just EMEI Review, uh, because it is so crucial to understand what's going on. And I, I think the important thing that I would say, Jeannie, about this moment in time right now that we're in is more than ever, we're realizing the absolute necessity of understanding and acting on the exposures that we all have mm -hmm. because... We don't know. I mean, I I thought I had a pretty good lifestyle and diet and, and mm -hmm. had detoxed for years. And then I was on this Vasper uh, cooling bike. It uses very cold pads while you exercise. Uh-huh. And I had liberation of toxins from my fat stores. I was so sick for a day. I could not believe it. Now, explain for those that aren't familiar, like me, what this technology is. It looks like an exercise bike where you move your arms and, and you're pedaling with your, your feet, but they have very cold pads around the upper muscles of the arm and around the thighs, and then, then another cold pad around the neck. And what it's supposed to do is help your muscles recover without producing a lot of lactic acid. Uh-huh. So, and then you do these interval sprints. So what you really want to do is come back to baseline and let yourself restore right. before your next sprint. And what an unintended consequence is they're finding out is that you're liberating things from your fat stores that are very difficult to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And so even for someone who considers himself pretty environmentally astute, I was shocked at how sick I was by liberating. That technology is not unlike the LiveO2 technology. Which I wanted to ask you about. So please talk about that. Sure. So the LiveO2 technology was um, some research that was originally done in Germany in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, Dr. Bill Ray, who practiced here in the United States, went over there to work under that researcher. And what they found is that if you are exposed to oxygen at a certain concentration, and in this particular research, it was only six liters per minute, um, Dr. Ray upregulated that um, so that it was higher, a little bit higher. But what what they find is that at that oxygen pressure, the tension allows for the unblocking, and I'm, I'm not using a scientific term here, I realize, but there are no valves between the little tiny arteries and the capillaries. So there, it's literally, there's a spasm that happens in people that prevents the liberation of oxygen into tissues. But at that increased pressure of oxygen, the capillary dilates. 
and oxygen can go into those tissues. And as a result of that increased oxygen exposure, utilization, uh, metabolism, uh, toxicants can also come out through the capillaries and the lymphatics. And is it from the extracellular space? That's a good question that I don't feel really like I can answer. I'm not sure that's known. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike Bauerschmidt might have the, the answer to that question. But the, the point of talking about this technology is that um, Dr. Bauerschmidt in his environmental medicine clinic has patients who use that technology. They get on the bike. They are given both high levels of oxygen and then that's reduced so that they're coming back down to lower oxygen, you know, lower atmospheres, lower oxygen tension, and they get uh, a response that he feels is even greater. And then he puts them in the sauna mm -hmm. so that everything that's released from those tissues can then be sweated out. Mm -hmm. um, and he has some very interesting cases of complex patients that have recovered, literally, um, that are combination lime mold, toxicant, you know, multiple toxicant exposures. Yeah. So that was um, Dr. Von Ardain's research in Germany. He's actually published in this area. They continue to publish. And the LIVO2 people, I believe they're mostly reaching out to the um, super athlete, you know, the triathlete community, because it does increase um, hemoglobin levels, you know, in the blood and supposedly is used for training, but it's also being used for detoxification as well. Uh, I have not used that technology in my clinic, but I'm familiar with it. And I think if it's used appropriately, uh, it can be very, very helpful. And Dr. Ray wrote uh, prolifically about this in his, you know, I think he started using it in the 70s in his patients. So he had a good 30 years of actually being able to, to observe in his patients. And I think that's my guess is that the contrast cold is doing that somehow you're getting the same kind of effect. Mm-hmm you know, of releasing those toxic substances, you know, either through the lymphatics or into the bloodstream. And you can just hit the sauna next time afterwards. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did it again. And I believe me, I took my detox nutrients afterwards. Mm -hmm, good. Yeah. I mopped them up. I, I just didn't know that that could be an effect. Well, they should study that. That would be an excellent area for investigation. It would be. Because I think we we need these types of therapies that are not that expensive, that are easy to access, and that can be used by people who are ambulatory, mm -hmm. you know, folks who, who can get on a bike. Well, let's back up a little bit. I, I, how would you cancel someone who hasn't even seen a practitioner yet? Where, how do you cancel them to begin at, you know, looking at their lifestyle and diet? Okay. So uh, coincidentally, but probably not. I just got off of a call with the National um, Academy of Sciences. And I forgive me, I can't remember the sub agency, but they just did a workshop on water filtration technologies and the necessity for water filtration technologies in the United States. And what was surprising to me was that every single a researcher and scientist that spoke said the same thing. They said it is up to the consumer to make sure that their water is clean enough to drink. 
And what they meant by that is that we can no longer depend on our municipalities, on our state government or on our federal government to protect us from the carcinogens and the endocrine disruptors in our water supply. And they were very clear about this. Hmm. They weren't hedging. This was stated on their slides. So the the research now is looking at um, water filtration uh, at the point of use. So we're talking about literally either whole house filtration uh, and or filtration at the sink. Mm-hmm. And there are units that you can buy, you know, at the hardware store, at the big box stores or online that um, filter uh, some contaminants, but maybe not all contaminants out of your water supply. So we've had in our training uh, group, we've had some water filtration uh, technologists and specialists come in and teach us about water filtration. And what they say is very different than the commercials that you'll see on TV. Uh, and, And what I've learned from working with patients in water filtration and I'm literally putting this as number one, water filtration, number one. Good to know. Is that every year by law, your water provider, so if it's, unless you have a private well, and those folks I'm going to talk about last, but if you have um, uh, city water, your municipality has to, by law, send you a letter in the mail every year telling you if there are any of the legal contaminants in your water that have exceeded the allowable levels based on you on the EPA. So the EPA sets limits for toxicants. Now they're, they don't test all of them. Um, You know, unfortunately we would love for that to happen, but they do test for the most common and the most deadly toxicants like arsenic. Uh, They do test for perfluorinates now. There's a system in place to do that. They test for hexavalent chromium, which is a metal that um, if anybody remembers the movie Aaron Brockovich, Mm -hmm. and if you don't remember that movie, it's a good movie to watch. Uh, Julia Roberts was in the starring role of Aaron Brockovich, who's a environmental activist, uh, looking at the situation in Hinkley, California, where Pacific Gas and Electric con- uh, contaminated the, in- the water supply of an entire town, um, and many, many people got sick and died. And it actually went to court and ended up being one of the highest, if not the highest, awards given uh, in any class action lawsuit in the history of the United States, and because it was so deadly. So hexavalent chromium is tested. And you can go to the Environmental Working Group, ewg.org, and go into their water database and just put in your zip code and they'll pull up all those reports for you. So you can look at those reports and I'm going to give you an example of what a report might say that you can then act on. So let's say uh, you look up your report and it says, uh, you know, we had high levels of arsenic in our water this year. And that's very common, mm-hmm. especially if you live in the northeast part of the United States or the Rocky Mountains or the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Arsenic is a carcinogen. Uh, it can contribute to cardiovascular disease and diabetes at you know, significantly low levels. It doesn't have to be like Bangladesh uh, or Taiwan where people literally get um, severe diabetes from drinking the water. Uh, We have those levels in the United States, in Nevada, for example. So arsenic's very easy to filter out. 
a reverse osmosis filtration system is the best system to buy. And uh, actually, you know, Jeannie, I'll give you, there's an article that's been published in the medical literature looking at the ability of reverse osmosis filtration systems to filter out different metals. They're not all the same. And that's the problem. That's what we've learned from our industrial hygienist colleagues and mentors is that they're, they're not all the same. And this is, I think, going to be the next step in terms of public health is literally supporting the availability of and use of effective point of use, meaning at your tap, water filtration systems. If people want further information, my colleagues, Dr. Tina Bowden and Dr. Anne-Marie Fine, um, both of them teach with me and EMEI, have done a free uh, hour-long um, lecture on uh, drinking water contamination. It's available on YouTube, and I'll send you that link. That'd be great. I think people would like to listen. Yes, it's they're entertaining. They did uh, six months worth of research to give this talk, um, and it's very specific to drinking water in the United States. Which is so important now with all the talk about lead and well, Flint was only one of about three, 300 municipalities that had elevated lead in their drinking water. Mm -hmm. um, Flint was just really the event that pulled back the curtain on the amount of lead in the drinking water in, in the United States drinking water system. So that's a simple thing. Well, simple may not be the right word. It's a concrete thing that everyone can do that will literally make a difference in their long-term health. Mm -hmm. We know that metals like lead and arsenic are probably one of the most sensitive tests. I just had this conversation with Dr. Pizzorno yesterday. One of the most sensitive tests, screening tests for cardiovascular disease, much more sensitive than serum cholesterol. Mm -hmm in terms of actually looking at, and, and again, I'm not talking about testing your drinking water, I'm talking about testing the human body, um, urine, arsenic, and blood lead uh, have very high sensitivity for being able to predict incident, meaning heart attack and stroke, in cardiovascular disease. And the, these are the tests we should be using in standard clinical medicine to, to screen for cardiovascular risk, and we're mm -hmm. not. And that, that is a knowledge gap, meaning it's, it is the result of the lack of knowledge in both medical systems and in individual physicians that we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. So lifestyle changes should probably also include EMFs. So first of all, tell us what are EMFs? So the EMF in the acronym stands for electromagnetic frequency. And there are a whole lot of different EMFs. And I'll give you some examples. They are invisible. You may know that you're being exposed to them, but you probably don't. They are uh, frequencies, we'll call them radio frequencies, because that's what they're legally called, that come from cell towers, or that come from cell phones, that come from computers that are on Wi-Fi, that come from Wi-Fi routers in the home or spreaders, which are little devices that extend to the Wi-Fi throughout the home. <clears throat> and they're also found or the exposure is found in places wherever there's Wi-Fi. 
So coffee shops, airports, etc. There are other kinds of electromagnetic frequencies that are called electromagnetic radiation. Uh, and there are also magnetic radiation that comes from, let's say, household devices like my Vitamix. You know, I can see that on my tri-field meter. You know, I have a little meter that measures electromagnetic uh, radiation, electromagnetic frequencies. And I can see that when I turn on the motor for my Vitamix or the motor for a hairdryer. Uh, now, those frequencies, fortunately, don't really extend very far from the appliance. They extend usually about the length of an arm, three feet. So if you just stand back three feet, you know, kind of hard when you're drying your hair, but <laughs> not so yeah. hard when you're blending your food, um, you can avoid those. What are more difficult to avoid but are possible to avoid are um, Wi-Fi that is used in the home and Wi-Fi that, that uh, your cell phone uses to get a signal. So Wi-Fi that's used in the home uh, comes out through a router that's attached to a modem. Modem brings the signal into the house. Router spreads that signal out into the airwaves of the home. Uh, what many people are doing now, especially at night, is turning off their router. You can literally unplug it and you will have no Wi-Fi. And that's a good thing to do for brain health. We will leave off here with our discussion with Dr. Lynn Patrick and take a deeper dive next time into electromagnetic frequencies and electromagnetic radiation. And a special shout out to Alliance for Natural Health USA for standing in the gap for our health freedoms and making all of these types of therapies available. Visit alliancefornaturalhealth-usa.org today and become a member.